Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. And I'm your co-host, Madeline Gochi, a 23 at Dartmouth. On today's episode, we get an update on what's been happening in the Upper Valley over the last few months. The date is the 15th of May 2020, and we're talking to Rob Gerwitt, veteran journalist and creator of the Daybreak Daily Newsletter, covering news in the Upper Valley. Thanks for joining us, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, to begin with, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about your background, as well as what Daybreak is, for those who haven't seen it, and how you got started. (laughs) Sure. Um, uh, My background is as a journalist, actually. I I spent about three decades as a reporter covering uh, U.S. politics. Um, I started in Washington, D.C. at something called Congressional Quarterly, which at the time, despite its name, was a weekly uh, magazine. Um, it's still around. It was kind of a magazine of record for Congress. I was lucky enough to end up in a section called the politics section. So was covering congressional elections, gubernatorial elections around the country. Um, and uh, after that, I left that uh, to go to a magazine that was just starting up basically by a bunch of CQ refugees um, called Governing, which covered state and local government around the country. Um, uh, a bunch of us had sort of come to the conclusion that um, the the most interesting policy questions were actually getting dealt with um, in state capitals and really you know county and and city offices long before they ever made it to Washington, uh, and so we wanted to to cover that. Um, and I was there for a long time, really for a couple of decades. Um, I left all that in 2014, went to work for something called Daily UV, which was a new media startup here in the Upper Valley, um, and I spent five years there. Um, left it. Uh, in March last year, um, uh, sort of, they were headed in different directions from the direction I wanted to go, and um, uh, and I launched Daybreak then. And Daybreak is an email newsletter that these days goes out to about uh, five thousand, fifty-five hundred uh, subscribers, most of them in the Upper Valley, but but some around the country, uh, and um, it's. Uh, it, it, it's really a, a roundup of local news and information, um, plus increasingly during the pandemic, sort of broader things that keep people entertained or, or intellectually stimulated. Because most of the people that are probably listening to this podcast are or are related in some fashion to Dartmouth students, um, could you talk a little bit about the broad effects of COVID on life in the Upper Valley? So for context, how many cases are we looking at in and around the Upper Valley area? Yeah, it's, it's actually a little hard to know, believe it or not, because um, uh, since all the states provide our cases that tested positive, of course, and um, uh, and also New Hampshire and Vermont report things a little differently. Um, I've heard anecdotally of entire families around the Upper Valley who had what appeared to be COVID, but they never got tested. So, uh, you know, you just have to assume that the actual numbers are undercounts. But what we do know is that um, altogether there have been uh, 16 cases in Hanover, 13 in Lebanon, um, and then four or fewer, um, uh, they won't get any more detail than that in towns like Lyme and Plainfield and some other surrounding towns on the New Hampshire side. In Vermont, there have been 10 in Hartford, nine in Woodstock, five or fewer in places like Norwich and Sharon. 
uh, Stratford. Um, if you look at the four counties that make up the Upper Valley, so that would be Grafton and Sullivan in New Hampshire, um, and Windsor and Orange in Vermont. Um, it's 55 altogether on the Vermont side, 73 in the New Hampshire counties. And then, of course, you know, a lot more in New Hampshire uh, in particular, where a lot of the cases are clustered in the southern tier close to Massachusetts. And so kind of relating to that, we want to discuss a little bit about unemployment that's occurring in the Upper Valley, um, kind of related to the crisis. So before that, could you briefly contextualize the employment landscape in the Upper Valley? So what are the most common industries um, and jobs and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's the Upper Valley is actually really interesting when, when you talk about employment. Obviously, the, the two biggest are DHMC and, um, and the college. And um, they, uh, I wouldn't say f- far outweigh, but but you know together they far outweigh pretty much everything else. But then uh, it's got a large and growing manufacturing and tech and biotech sector in particular. Um, a, a lot of those you know spun out of Thayer or other Dartmouth institutions, um, but they're now really serious employers in the region. So I'm talking about places like Hypertherm and Creari and. Uh, the Mascoma Corp, Timken, Novo Nordisk, um, up by the airport in Lebanon, Simbex. Uh, you know, Tillman Gurn Gross has various biotech companies out there. Um, there's Appcast uh, in Lebanon. So uh, uh, kind of a, 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 a pretty vibrant tech sector. And then um, uh, a lot of retail and restaurants. Um, and those in particular, of course, have just taken it on the chin during this. Obviously, the U.S. as a whole has been, you know, heavily impacted by the crisis. That goes without saying. Um, initial jobless claims are up. Unemployment is up to, I think, nearly fifteen percent. Could you talk a little bit about what unemployment has looked like? How are people responding to it, um, and you know, how is it affecting people? Um, sure. Let's let's talk about the numbers for a second. Um, uh, they're huge. I mean, if you, uh, especially if you think statewide. Um, uh, which is it's it's hard to get detailed numbers really for um, you know for individual counties, but statewide in Vermont um, uh, last week nearly fifty seven thousand people got um, unemployment checks, which is one way of looking at that. Um, that was actually fewer than the week before. At its peak a few weeks ago, it was seventy six thousand. The drop. Uh, as near as I can tell, is actually kind of an artifact of problems with the unemployment system um, uh, rather than uh, uh, the actual need. Um, uh, last I saw, there were a couple of economists in the state who are expecting next year's numbers to be around 80,000. Um, New Hampshire's, you know, more than double that. I, I think early in May, uh, the number of claims was somewhere around 172,000. Locally, uh, one of the things that's actually impressed me has been how various employers have worked really hard to, um, to uh, if they, well, basically, if they had needs to, to essentially redeploy their staff. So rather than furloughing people um, or putting them on unemployment, um, hospitals, for instance, uh, DHMC, uh, Mount Escutney, others, would take people who um, had been dealing with patients um, uh, who uh, and patients were no longer coming in and instead put them doing other things that were needed around the hospital um, uh, restaurants uh, it's really depended um, some have uh, just closed down and 
closed down pretty early so that their uh, employees could actually go on unemployment um, uh, because you know the benefits um, uh, in some cases the benefits uh, are more than they were actually making in their in wages and so um, they've uh, uh, there have been uh, some that just shut their doors others have kept going lose for example you know basically did a bunch of cleaning up uh, within the restaurant and has shifted to an all takeout model and um, and it, uh, he, Jared Burke, the guy who owns it, is really keeping all his employees um, going there. Um, so um, retail, you know, uh, everything shut down. Um, uh, but uh, smaller stores in particular are, uh, are trying uh, curbside pickup models, and so we're keeping a few employees going. And the big box stores in West Leb um, looks like uh, they'll probably be opening uh, or in, in one way or another in the next uh, couple of weeks. You mentioned, I think, Vermont's obsolete unemployment system, that something is malfunctioning there. Could you explain, I guess, in a bit more detail what that means, what it looks like? Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, it's a just, it's a mess. I mean, it's better now than it was, but oh my gosh. Um, so basically, the, the system runs um, on a 30-year-old mainframe. Um, and um, the state had actually uh, set out to, um, to update it a few years ago. They joined this multi-state effort um, and completely just botched it. Um, officials in Vermont blamed the, the problem on the difficulties of working with other states, but you know there are pretty complex multi-state efforts out there um, having to do with data that seem to have gone just fine. So I, I think they're just, I, I think they're kind of blowing smoke, but my opinion. Um, anyway, the upshot is that the unemployment system was completely overwhelmed from top to bottom. Um, uh, you know, all of a sudden there are thousands and thousands of people calling in trying to, to, to get unemployment insurance. So they didn't have enough people answering the phone. There were stories of people literally calling hundreds of times trying to get through. Um, and then because of the, the, the mainframe, people trying to apply online um, either couldn't get through, or if, if they did, they were getting rejected because the code hadn't been updated. Um, so, uh, so for weeks, um, it, things were just uh, terrible, and and a lot of Vermonters were really frustrated. They finally seemed to be settling down. Uh, it it just got too politically uh, difficult for the Scott administration not to do something about it, uh, and, and so they did. Drawing on that, um, can you summarize the response of both the local and the state governments to this crisis? It, it's been multifaceted. Um, uh, I think it, you know, locally it's been really all coronavirus all the time, uh, except for road repair programs, which are starting to gear up for the summer. Um, I, the local response has been kind of interesting. I, I think it's it's really been trying to serve mostly a, 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 as a central information resource, and it isn't just like town hall that's been doing it. Libraries um, have really gone all out to help townspeople uh, navigate the various types of information they might need, like how to file for unemployment or how-tos on baking or sort of whatever whatever people want. Um, I know there are some police chiefs who are putting out um, daily bulletins, wrapping up uh, you know, what the state and the feds are saying. Um, uh, I, I actually, just as an aside, I think even more impressive than what local government has done is the sort of broader public response. Um, it, it, town government uh, in both Vermont and New Hampshire really depends 
quite heavily on volunteers, even in the best of times, to, to be on committees, to, you know, work on planning boards, stuff like that. Um, and that's been uh, especially true now. So um, mutual aid organizations in a lot of towns are up and running, mostly because people have made it happen, just ordinary people. Um, commercial community hubs, you know, I'm sort of thinking of Dan and Witz um, in Norwich, you know, have really become true community hubs. Um, the, the state responses in both uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, some, somewhat different, but um, uh, but I, I think both governors, uh, Phil Scott in Vermont and Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, um, have generally gotten really high marks from people um, for their, they, they give press conferences, uh, you know, at least three times a week. Um, they, uh, they've, they've, been measured in the way they've approached things, um, uh, you know, as with a number of other governors around the country, uh, it's been factual, straightforward. They've relied on health experts, uh, in, especially in the early going. Um, the reopening process is pretty measured. New Hampshire's doing it more quickly than Vermont. Um, but I know that New Hampshire's really worried about uh, people from Massachusetts, um, where, of course, uh, things are still spiking. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's much more, uh, much more uh, uh, sort of serious there, uh, and um, so they, uh, uh, you know, they've been trying to figure out how to deal with that. But uh, I think the state responses have been pretty respectable. Um, and I guess looking at a national level, um, one of your stories looks at flaws in the federal paycheck protection program. Um, could you briefly, I guess, summarize what those flaws are and what issues, if any, this is causing? Um, in the Upper Valley. Sure. I, I should be clear, by the way, that the stories aren't mine. I just linked to them but um, and described them. But uh, on, on the PPP program, yeah, boy, it uh, kind of reminds me of the unemployment thing. It's kind of like, where do you begin? Um, so first off, there were, there were the problems that small businesses had actually getting into the program. Um, it was first come, first served through banks that already worked with the Small Business Administration. So, you know, first, if you were a small business, you had to have a relationship with a bank that actually had an SBA relationship. Um, and not all businesses did. So they had to forge into relationships with, you know, the handful of banks that were handling uh, the loans in, in whatever region they were in around here, for example. Um, it was Ledyard and Mescoma, um, Wells River, a few others. Um, and then um, you had to have a banker who'd go to bat for you, no matter how small you were. Um, and while that was mostly true around here, uh, the, the, the community banks got really high marks from the people they were working with um, for how they handled things. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jared Burke was telling me that, you know, he was in Lou's all the time. Um, and he said he saw people uh, at Ledger Bank, which is, you know, right next door. Um, the uh, sort of going in late nights, weekends, uh, they were working hard. Um, but, um, uh, but you know, you've, you've read the same stories I have about big chains like Shake Shack and others um, getting in line first. And, and because it was a, a limited pot of money, um, uh, you know, some of them basically drained money out that small, true small businesses didn't get. So I'd say that was one problem. Uh, and then you have to remember how it's structured. It's a loan but once you get it, a clock starts ticking. And after eight weeks, if you can show that um, you used at least 75% of the loan toward payroll costs for your pre-crisis headcount, which is important, then it becomes a grant. 
Um, the loans, though, are based on payroll, which means they don't cover all the costs. So there's utilities, there's rent, there's supplies, sort of all the things that small businesses need to keep going. Um, so I think a number of them are really worried that the money's just not going to be enough. Um, and, and because of the way it's structured, restaurants in particular are stuck because they haven't been able to reopen. I mean, in New Hampshire, um, uh, starting, uh, I think, on Monday, that is May 18th, um, they'll be able to open for uh, outdoor dining. But a lot of towns are trying to figure out how to make that work. So who knows how quickly that'll happen. And even then, it's only going to be at a fraction of, of the staff that they needed. So they're really, um, uh, in, in, I think a, a lot of them concluded that the PPP loans just won't work for them and, and you know, didn't even bother taking them. So how have local labs and researchers uh, around the region been involved in research relating to COVID um, and have been helping the Upper Valley uh, with the response? It's, it, there's actually a lot going on around here. It's, I've, I've been really impressed, and it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, Dartmouth-Hitchcock is participating in a trial of remdesivir, the, the, um, the drug that may be able to um, treat uh, COVID patients with serious symptoms. Um, along with Mayo, they're also looking at whether blood plasma from recovered patients um, can be used to treat severe cases. Um, they're looking into antibody questions and how to develop accurate tests. Um, and they're also looking at why some people get really sick and others don't. These are all, you know, obviously cutting edge, serious questions that lots of people around the world are looking at. Um, and that's going on here as well. Um, David Leib, who's at Geisel, um, he's been working with an international team on more rapid and cheaper ways to test for the coronavirus. Uh, there was another... Um, team, uh, I think at Geisel um, and, and definitely at DH, that partnered with the New Hampshire State Lab um, back, especially in the early days when, when things were just, when they were getting hammered, um, to help them clear out a testing backlog. Um, there's a THER team looking at COVID antibodies and whether they can be engineered for therapy. Uh, and then there's this guy, Daniel Rapp, um, who's, I think, really fascinating. He's a grad student at Dartmouth. He's affiliated with a lab at UT Austin. Um, and, you know, uh, for several years before this, um, he and the people he works with had been looking at Yama antibodies. Um, and uh, they created one that's uh, sort of using, um, basically, uh, Yama antibodies, they sort of come in two forms. One, like humans, but the other... Um, uh, can deal with things that are much smaller. And so they basically took one of those and um, adapted it and created an antibody that's capable of wrapping around the, the um, protein spikes on SARS-CoV-2. Um, and at least in cultures, because of that, it keeps them from infecting cells. Um, uh, and, and then this isn't really quite research, but, but I, I should mention um, that, that there are doctors and nurses and even hospital maintenance staff, especially at the VA in White River Junction, um, who uh, went to New York, volunteered to go to New York and Boston um, really during the peak of the surge and, and even afterward to help those hospitals as well. So even though it wasn't research, um, they, they spent um, uh, you know, weeks um, in those places uh, helping out in ways um, I think that uh, you know, were really vital to those efforts there. So I guess a common theme that we've uh, touched upon uh, so far is that there really is this community spirit in the Upper Valley. I guess people coming together, you know, whether it's in terms of research, 
um, or otherwise. I do want to talk now about non-profit efforts because re um, reading through Daybreak, I came across quite a few stories about you know multiple types of non-profit efforts to respond to the crisis. So could you tell us about a few organisations and efforts that caught your eye over the past few months? Yeah, they're the, they're the big ones. Um, the, you know, the places you've probably heard of, the Haven um, in particular, um, you know, they run, a, among other things, a food pantry. Um, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't keep the, the um, congregate living that, um, that uh, they do there going um, in the way they did it. So instead, uh, they worked really hard to, to spread their population uh, among motels and other places around the region. Um, the food pantry basically moved to an out, outside model under a tent. Um, where uh, uh, volunteers um, were still coming in, you know, getting food and then providing it to people who um, would drive up. And, and they were doing it, no questions asked, whether you were part of their um, clientele or not, um, anybody who needed it. Um, the, the Methodist Church in White River Junction um, did this um, uh, basically sidewalk food pantry. I mean, they basically, they, they've just been getting donations of food. They set it out. People who need it, come and get it. Um, uh, Listen, uh, uh, you know, faced uh, real problems because they had to shut down their um, their retail stores, which are really what fund their efforts, um, and so they weren't able to get uh, uh, the income coming in. But they they developed other ways of bringing in both money and especially food donations. They kept their pantries going as well. Willing Hands has been, uh, you know, a pretty remarkable. Um, organization in in all of this, that of course is the organization that, um, in normal times, uh, would um, get food from uh, restaurants and 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 grocery stores that they would otherwise throw out and then um, distribute it uh, to nonprofits and to food pantries and to individual families and um, and they've been they've been doing all that they've ramped up their grow or row program so that they've got people now. Um, uh, who are putting in gardens and, uh, uh, you know, are saving a row or two uh, so that produce will go to them, to Willing Hands, which they'll then distribute. Um, there's an organization called Upper Valley Strong, uh, which actually uh, first came together uh, after um, her, uh, sorry, tropical storm, Irene, um, and uh, in 2011, um, and it was a, basically a conglomeration of Upper Valley nonprofits um, that, that was focused on reacting quickly to meeting needs. Um, and it, it reconstituted itself for this with a lot of help from, uh, from the population health program at DHMC, who's basically staffed it so that the nonprofits themselves can focus on what they do. Uh, and, um, uh, and they've set up a set of committees that, that really keep their eyes out on what's going on around the region and then can react pretty quickly to what needs are. So initially they were worried about um, childcare for essential workers. Um, uh, that didn't turn out to be as great a need as they'd anticipated. So they've moved on to really the economic dislocation now that uh, I think everybody worries about um, in the Upper Valley and, and in, in New Hampshire and Vermont in general. What else? Oh, uh, the mutual aid organizations. Uh, so, the, you know, every town has its own uh, uh, usually loosely knit organization that comes together to provide, uh, steer people to food or housing or whatever. And so a lot of towns have, have uh, got those up and running as well. Um, and uh, 
they're, they're, uh, it's usually one or two volunteers who really keep them going. Um, and they've done sort of some interesting things, you know, uh, in both New Hampshire and Vermont, people from out of state are, have been asked to, um, uh, to, to self-quarantine for two weeks when they come in, even now. Uh, and, um, uh, I think people in both states are really worried about second homeowners or vacationers or others coming in. Uh, and so the mutual aid organizations, among other things, um, are, are making it clear to anybody who does come in that they, A, have to stay in their places for two weeks, but B, there's this team of volunteers out there who'll go run errands for them, get them food, etc. Um, so they're doing that kind of thing. One of the other stories on Daybreak that caught my eye was about farmers markets. Um, so what is the importance of farmers markets um, and what has been going on recently? Yeah, I, I don't know if you've been reading this, but it's true around the country and it is really true around here. Um, f local farms have become uh, really vital pieces of the, of the food infrastructure. Um, and, um, uh, you know, CSA shares are through the roof. I know a couple of farms that have just stopped um, offering them because they're, they're as full up with stuff that they can grow as they can. F farmers markets, um, uh, you know, the, the, the two big ones are the Lebanon market um, and the Norwich market. Um, and they'll both be open. New Hampshire never said that um, uh, they couldn't open Vermont uh, for a long time, su was suggesting that uh, farmers markets couldn't open. They changed that, um, and the Norwich market opened last Saturday um, uh, outdoors. And um, I was there. It was a little strange. Um, it's taking up more space than uh, it used to, so that they can keep stalls farther apart. Um, everybody's requested to wear masks. They've got hand sanitizing stations by the entrances. Um, and, uh, you know, they ask people to pre-order and ideally prepay, but uh, you can also use, um, uh, you know, use cash or checks. Um, it's harder with credit cards uh, there. Um, the Lebanon market opens, it's either next week or the week after, um, and it'll also be restricting the number of people who can go in. So they're really, they're, they're trying to do their best to, to keep things um, under control. Uh, as things warm up, last Saturday here was um, cold and extremely windy, uh, and even then there was a pretty good turnout. But you know, as it gets warm and sunny, and people really want to go to the markets, um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens um, and whether they can keep things as socially distant and in order as they'd like to. Um, in terms of how important they are, they're really vital. Um, uh, they for growers there. The growers really depend on them to, to uh, make money during the season. Um, and I think a lot of people depend on them uh, to, to keep themselves in produce and meat, uh, especially during, um, uh, during the spring, summer and fall. I'd, I'd like to end off on, I guess, a positive or as positive a note as possible at this time. Um, and I know that obviously Daybreak um, sources stories that aren't necessarily related to COVID. So do you have any uh, maybe fun, quirky, uplifting stories over the past few months? There have been, uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, there's actually been a lot. Um, 
some of it's national or even international. Um, but uh, one of the one of the things that I've really enjoyed is uh, as spring has come on here, um, there have been a lot of bear sightings, and as a result, a lot of photos of of uh, black bears um, that that people have taken, and some have sent them into Daybreak, and I've run them, or you know, I found them uh, on uh, Reddit or uh, Facebook, other places. Um, but from around the region, they've been really cool to see. There's a lot of wildlife out there now, um, here as elsewhere. Uh, it it just feels like there's just more around, as there are fewer cars and fewer people, um, and uh, so. There's a real um, kind of uh, vibrancy um, out in the out in the um, woods and fields around. Um, I, oddly enough, you know, one of the other things that I find really heartening is that, um, uh, like, local news hasn't stopped, um, and in fact, it seems to be picking up again. So, so even though in normal times we might roll our eyes at things like there's a right now there's a controversy over a cell tower that. Uh, AT&T wants to put in um, in Thetford. Um, it's going to be 190 feet high, um, which is high, and uh, will probably be visible uh, all over town. People in town are up in arms about that. Um, uh, uh, Martha Hennessy, the state senator who's represented um, Hanover and Lebanon and Lyme, uh, for the last few terms, uh, she's a Democrat. She's decided to retire. Um, Initially, there were a few candidates from uh, from Lyme and Hanover who uh, were interested. Beatrice Pastor, um, uh, former state rep, uh, who lives in Lyme. There's a psychologist and a retired orthopedic surgeon in Hanover. Uh, and then all of a sudden, um, uh, like yesterday maybe, uh, came news that um, uh, that there are three city councilors in Lebanon um, who basically say, you know, Hanover's had the seat for a while. It's our turn. So they're, they're considering getting into the race as well. I'm guessing that not all three will, but, you know, probably a couple of them will. Um, there's the, there are governor's races going on. That stuff's going to be really interesting to watch. It's like, um, uh, you know, in, in Vermont, I think in particular, uh, because of the reviews that Phil Scott has gotten for this, his handling of this, despite the unemployment mess, I think everything else, um, uh, you know, even Democrats have praised what he's done. Um, and so, but he's got two strong challengers, Rebecca Holcomb and David Zuckerman, and a less strong challenger. Um, and uh, both Holcomb and Zuckerman are Democrats. They're scrapping for the, you know, for the nomination. Um, and so, and, and trying, I think, to figure out how do you run against Phil Scott um, during, uh, during this pandemic. And um, that's pretty fun as well. So, um, you know, there's, they're like the time wasting great things and, and there's the, um, the eye rolling great things that are actually really fun to watch right now, mostly because they're a relief. Yeah, well, I hope we see more of those fun stories um, as time goes on. Uh, yeah, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. I know a lot of Dartmouth students um, want to keep in touch with what's happening in the Upper Valley. And I think this has been super informative. So thanks for joining us and please tune in next week.